We live in a very diverse nation in the United States, and our college campuses can be equally, sometimes even more diverse than the city or neighborhood we grew up in. Diversity may be on campus, but that doesn't mean every voice is heard at the table. Voices from the Margins is a podcast designed to elevate the voices of women and students of color from college campuses around the United States. Together, we hope to raise awareness on unknown issues, invite people to action, and advocate for the unheard. Join us on Voices from the Margins. Awakening, mm-hmm. um, which is so much more exciting in superhero movies. Um, <laughs> so I think that there have been a number of points when I've become more, um, I've become awakened. Um, a number of times I know in my undergrad classes when I um, became friends with someone who was, who just came from a different perspective. Um, and I think when that happens, you kind of go through this process of incorporating that into your idea of how the world works. And so when I came to, when I came to undergrad, um, it was kind of a really unique experience for me to be living around a lot of second uh, generation Asian Americans. Um, and for a while, that, um, that was, a, was a challenging process of figuring out what it means to belong to my community. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it means to share an idea of what, how we feel about ourselves. And there were a lot of conversations like that, like, how do you think Asian Americans feel about this? Or how do we together um, feel about this news item or about this particular piece of cultural news? Um, and that was really challenged um, a couple of years later when I became friends with um, people from South Asia um, and started to realize that, you know, there are more, to Asian Americans in just three countries, um, China, Japan, Korea, and, you know, stateless Taiwan. <laughs> um, and, and that was, that was really different, particularly because I think um, South Asians have to deal um, with challenges regarding um, their appearance, like their, their skin tone tends to be under her. Um, when I say South Asian, I'm talking about like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, a number of different countries that I can't really name. That um, make up because, uh, the southern continent yes. of Asia, yes. Yes, the southern continent of Asia. My geography is terrible. Um, I was very lucky to have people in my life who um, would just make these comments, like, um, like, oh, when you say Asian, you mean us too, right? That would check me in terms of how I was talking about Asian America, how I was talking about this group that I felt like I belonged to, um, and who would share um, about experiences they had that felt very different than mine. And that was, that was tough for me in some ways to realize that um, my experience wasn't shared by everyone who necessarily identified with me. Uh, yeah, I think for me, um, in terms of, I think probably recognizing the ways in which uh, I've become woke to some things, you know, as always, I think it's been a journey. Uh, I remember 
coming to college uh, as a freshman at UT, and they always say that college is supposed to be, in some respects, a melting pot. And I don't like that illustration, but I think it definitely, uh, you get woke very quickly in college, especially if you're on a PWI, a predominantly white institution. And I was, I grew up, uh, you know, predominantly around black people my entire life uh, for elementary, middle, and high school and got to college. And there were 2,000 people, black people at uh, Jack Yates, the predominantly black high school. And there were only 2,000 black students at the 55,000 total student population of the University of Texas. And so my mom says, you go, you become a big fish in a big pond. And I remember recognizing uh, not just the ways in which I would, I was already awakened to some things, but the ways in which my voice was not central in the narrative of society. There was a guy uh, by the name of Joe Silas, who was, uh, we were freshmen together at UT. I remember we were walking back down uh, 21st Street on UT's campus, and Joe told me, you need to come with me to the seminar. And I said, no, no, I don't have time. I have homework. I have homework. Joe's bigger than me. He's stronger than me. And uh, he did something I'll never forget. He grabbed my backpack, and he ran <laughs> inside of this room. And so I had to chase him, and I walked into this room uh, in the UTC, and it's a room that probably can hold well over 1,000 students, but there were only about maybe 120 in there. And Joe and I were the only two black people in the room. And Joe and I, uh, I walked to him and was like, man, give me my backpack. Let's go. I'm whispering. And then I heard the uh, seminar leading. It was a professor on UT's campus. And he was asking the question, does racism exist both in society and also on campus? And it immediately caught my attention because here you've got, you know, I think a little over 100 uh, students in the room who are predominantly white. And you've got two black people who just walked in. And the black community did not know about the form. We weren't aware of it. And the overall uh, thought process from up front was that, no, we've solved a number of the racial problems. This is back in 2000, and that given the diversity in the country, the diversity on campus, that these things were fine. And so I raised my hand very quickly and shared with them my first, the experience of my first day on campus when I got stopped by a police officer. And he actually drew his gun on me because he thought I was trying to rob my roommate and take his bicycle. And Joe... Uh, began to share some stories as well that he experienced in growing up in Dallas. And there was a, um, a, white female, a white female student that was in the room with us and she listened to everything and she raised her hand and you, you saw the tears well up in her eyes and you heard her voice begin to crack. And she just said, I don't understand or people saying that they are treated differently because of their ethnicity, because of their race. And you saw in the same way that Joe and I realized that we, our voices were not central to a conversation, I think, for that white female student. I think in some respects, she became woke or awakened to the reality of the perspective that she had had when she was growing up was different from other perspectives, precisely what you were saying. So, you know, I, I think we have some undergrad stories. I think um, probably one that happened more recently for me was actually just a couple of weeks ago. I'm in Fuller Seminary and my friend Erna Stubblefield Hackett, who's also on staff with Intervarsity, she's in seminary as well, and the name of the school escapes me. But we were talking about just some of the immigration issues that are taking place in the United States, and she's focused on Native American theology right now. And so she asked one of our Native American professors, uh, you know, what's their thought process theologically about immigration? And he said, are you referring to uh, the last 700 years that we've had immigrants in, the, in our land? And it was just one of those reawakening perspectives for her to be able to have 
I think uh, a lot of times when we talk about immigration, especially as an African-American, I think about the last 400 years that Black people have been in the United States. And we all think about the generations that our ethnic group has been here. But to ask someone who's First Nations or Native American, and their answer would be, oh, not 400 years for African-Americans, or even the last 50 years, as some of us talk about here in the country, for Native Americans, it's the last 700. And so there are ways in which I think we are increasingly becoming more and more aware of the different perspectives that are out there. Uh, so it's a journey, I would definitely say. I can't believe you stood up in an auditorium and <laughs> said that. <laughs> I would have like a room full of 300 white yeah, students in yeah, Texas. <laughs> yeah. well, luckily, it was only a little over 100. But, you know, I was okay. you're a freshman, you're 17. And, um, yeah, you know, I just heard something that was very blatantly contradictory uh, to my lived experience. Um, I think to have someone of a different ethnic background more or less say that the problems and the experiences that I had had growing up just fundamentally wasn't reality and wasn't true, that those were exceptions and not the norm. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I found that difficult to, to accept. I do think that we've made tremendous progress as a country. Without question, things are a lot better, I think, um, in terms of race uh, and ethnicity and the laws that have changed. We've definitely made some tremendous progress, but I think to say that we've solved the problem, which was, I think, the motif that he was coming from, I fundamentally disagree with, and something in me was just allergic mm -hmm. to that perspective, so. Yeah, it's, um, it reminds me of a story I, uh, I heard this past year. I was in a class uh, on, a statistics class, and so my professor was talking about a paper he did um, at a primarily white, um, Midwestern campus. He did a study on what happens when um, you put white students in a class on diversity and have them talk about race. Um, and he was sharing this because he was talking about how sometimes studies don't go the way you think they will. And what ended up happening was the more this group of white students talked about the race, they actually become more became more racist in their first perspectives. <laughs> Which this is was, what your professor said? Well, yes, this is what this, the results uh, oh, wow. produce. And so I think it's interesting because we come at this perspective of being woken. Um, and I think it, it's kind of implied that education is a large vehicle for that. Like if you read the right books, if you take the right classes, it'll make a difference. Um, when maybe... Uh, so, so what he suggested was maybe... Um, just being able to talk about um, prejudice ideas kind of confirmed them. And so people became more prejudiced the more they heard other people talk about these ideas. Hmm. Um, but for me, it just kind of underlines the importance of having people in your life, uh, either in your classes or in like your church group or your fellowship um, that do come from a different perspective. Like just how important it is to have those people in the room, even if it is one or two out of a hundred. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm curious, like the white students, was it as they began, I'm assuming there was a level of vulnerability so they could share honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so was it some students began to share on limited experiences or they began to share about some stereotypes and those students affirmed those things or you don't have a lot of details as to how it kind of I don't have a lot of details. Yeah. I looked at the paper and I thought, I do not have time to read this. So yeah. I skimmed it. <laughs> yeah, that's just interesting though. Yeah. I think I have, I mean, it's, I think that's true for every ethnic group. There are ways in which you can have um, groups of, of ethnic, of people of similar ethnic backgrounds in one room, all black people in one room or all Latino people in one room or all Asian American, 
First Nations, white people in a room. And I think that there's a ways in which it is a safe space for people to be able to process and to debrief. And there are ways in which, you know, I think depending on the level of cross-cultural experiences or displacement or recognized displacement in the room, it can be a very helpful and healthy conversation, right? There are ways in which I think you and I, even going back to our own respective ethnic backgrounds, we can challenge some stereotypes. I can challenge some stereotypes about Asian Americans around other black people because of my experiences and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But precisely what you said, if those experiences are not there, if you have not had some examples where you've been displaced and you have not been in power and you've had to be around other ethnic groups, or you've had some of your stereotypes challenged and even corrected, then yeah, absolutely, it can kind of descend into anarchy, if you will, <laughs> where it's like one of the worst fears imagined, uh, I think, by marginalized people groups. So that raises an interesting uh, perspective you talked about um, that I thought would be good for us to be able to discuss. So we talked okay. about recognizing displacement and you were uh, asking the question, um, does being woke look different for different marginalized groups? And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think my experience um, of being, becoming awake looks very different than what I've seen in others. Um, particularly how I see a lot of white Americans become awake. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think, is this just my experience that's unique or are there other, ex like, um, different groups that go through this this process. So I know in the last podcast, um, I talked about how growing up, um, I lived in two Americas and how, um, and, and I was able to really draw a distinction between the two of those. But to be honest, I don't think that's something I was very conscious of or noticed until I was older, not until I came to college and started thinking about um, people groups and different experiences more often. <clears throat> um, for many Asian Americans, um, there's this stereotype that we are like the, the perfect minority, right, or the model minority. We follow the rules, we work really hard, we assimilate ourselves into American society, we learn English, um, and a result, as a result of that, I think we Sometimes, I don't, I don't think it's true for other people, but I know for myself, I, I think that there's a degree to which I really internalize that, mm. um, that I believe that race doesn't matter. Mm. Um, and that there's not that much of a difference between me and other white people. And I think that when it comes to um, experiences of racism, um, historical discrimination, um, I, I tend to default into thinking that my ethnicity as a Chinese Taiwanese person is actually going to give me a pass. Yeah. And I know that's actually not true for a lot of other marginalized groups. Um, that from the moment that they become aware of who they are, for example, um, for it would seem like for a lot of LGBTQ um, individuals, that the process of coming out can be really challenging sometimes, especially they live in, envir in an environment um, or in a community where they know that that lifestyle or that culture is just not accepted. Yeah. Um, and for me, that wasn't true. I felt like being Asian American was very accepted. And so for me, being woken requires me to embrace this acceptance that I am 
not accepted. Hmm. Um, and to not allow myself to shift back into the sense of comfort in this belief that, um, that my race is invisible. Hmm. Um, that's not to say that it is. It's just I bought into it in some ways. So yeah. what do you think, Sean? Uh, you know, I think, um, yeah, definitely. I think it definitely looks different uh, depending on which ethnic group you're a part of. I think uh, even before I say something about marginalized groups, I think there's something to say about the dominant culture for in the United States. I think white people, I think for white people to recognize uh, what does it mean to get woke, if you will, or to become aware of these things, it just requires radical displacement. And when I say radical displacement, I mean displacement where the dominant culture is able to give up power um, beyond their ability to pick it back up. So, for example, displacement is not going to a predominantly Asian-American church on Sunday or a predominantly African-American church on Sunday. You know when the service is, well, you don't know when the service is going to start or end if you go to a black church. But you more or less know when the service is going to start and when it's going to end. And it's two and a half, it's two hours or two and a half hours of displacement. You know when it's going to start, you know when it's going to stop. And that, in my opinion, is not displacement because you're still in power. You can still control the narrative. And if we're in the United States, especially if someone from the dominant culture um, walks into a predominantly black church, uh, everyone in the room can tell that this person, for lack of a better word, is really out of place, that they're visiting in some capacity. So they may be nicer. Their perspective may be different. Um, as opposed to if you're going on a mission trip for six weeks, if you're going an, into a different country for an extended period of time, by the time a month or six weeks rolls around, uh, you've probably redlined. You've probably gotten upset. You're like, I am ready to go home. Oh, God, but I'm still here for another month. <laughs> That's when displacement really takes place. It's when you recognize you are not in power, that the cultural norms of doing things are different and you cannot change it. I think, and then it requires either an entering into that world or a rejection of that world. But I think uh, radical displacement is really what's needed for the dominant culture. And for folks who can't be radically displaced, you've got to have mentors of color, like Soon Chan Ra talks about in the next evangelicalism. Uh, if you don't have mentors of color to help reshape I think some of those stereotypes or misnomers uh, about different marginalized groups, then it's very easy for folks to come together, sadly, like that group of college students you were talking about. And I think where the stereotypes or the negative experiences are the only ones that are discussed. So I mean, as for the dominant culture, I think um, in terms of people of color, I think for us, it's important. Uh, I don't know if displacement is the right term. Well, it's, it's displacement, but it's a different kind of displacement. Uh, I think if you're a person of color, we're always displaced. We always have a foot in two different worlds. We're always code switching. There is a professional vernacular that I have when I step into an university context or when I get ready to go and speak uh, on a college campus. And there's ways in which I talk different when I go back home, when I'm in third ward or when I'm with my family, we're kicking it, watching the game and kind of those things. So we're always code switching. And so we've always got a foot in two worlds. I think for us um, as people of color, the ways in which we have to be displaced is I think we have to experience displacement in another marginalized people group. Um, one thing that I always push back on, for example, is that sometimes we'll see uh, in college circles, or evangelical circles, they'll take, they'll take the black students or Latino students or uh, an ethnic minority group and say, we want them to experience displacement and we immerse them into white culture. It's like, well, that's, that's life for us. That's every single day. Right. And that's also, I think, not helpful um, in terms of education-wise for white people because what we've come to realize is that the conversation changes whenever the dominant culture leaves the room. This is true across the board. If there's 
a bunch of men on a team and only a couple of ladies, when the men walk out of the room, <laughs> women have a very different conversation. Same thing, thing, not just in terms of gender, but also in ethnicity too. Uh, I think if there is a conversation about race and ethnicity and it's predominantly white-led or white-centered and the cross-cultural competency is not high, then you'll find most people of color can just agree with those things. And then when the white folks leave, the conversation is very different. And so I think for people of color to be displaced, Black people need to go and immerse themselves into Latino culture, or Asian Americans need to go and immerse themselves into South Asian culture or into African American culture. And that way you can see the perspectives are different. Uh, for me, I think as someone who saw uh, an Asian American chapter uh, affiliate with InterVarsity, at uh, the same time that my BCM chapter got planted, I thought, you know, I've learned about campus ministry and I've learned about the Asian American community through uh, one group called Chinese Bible Study. And a friend of mine named Andy Wong, he was uh, pretty adamant, him and a couple of his friends, they were adamant about changing the name of the Bible study from Chinese Bible study to Asian American ministries. And Andy was saying that there are different Asian groups that are on campus and to just call it Chinese Bible study, we're alienating people. And as I began to listen to Asian American staff and students share, they talked about the realities of that there are Taiwanese students on campus, there are Japanese students on campus, there are Filipino students on campus, there are Chinese students on campus, whether it's they're uh, from Mandarin or a Cantonese background, but to only have Chinese Bible study, you're omitting all these different groups. And I realized in listening to them, oh goodness, I am a legitimate American and I am racist. I have assumed that the Asian diaspora, if you just have one, I think, generic uh, Asian palette, then that'll be enough for everyone. In reality, there are different cultural groups that are in there. And I have to take the time to stop and to listen and to immerse myself in those different cultures. And not just assume that if I know one, that I know them all. Uh, so I think we've got to have displacement uh, in marginalized groups. I think folks at the margins have to look at the other marginalized groups and say, how can I help you? How can I advocate for you? How can I listen to you and to your story? I think that's how we grow. Uh, and I think that's part of how we get the opportunity to stay woke, if you will. Um, I was intrigued by your, the distinction you made between a temporary displacement and a radical displacement. Can you talk a little bit about how, like what's to be gained from a radical displacement beyond, like what was I, what if I was to, instead of going on a two month summer project, right, to another country where everyone looks different than me, maybe eats differently, thinks differently, does family differently. Um, what if I was to do something like, join a black church for a year Is that would count i think that counts I, okay. yeah that's right with displacement i think what when i talk about i think um displacement versus radical displacement this is just sean so uh okay. i think the dangers of just good old-fashioned regular displacement is that we can become consumers rather than learners of the culture hmm. uh if like the example that you use right i want to go and join a black church what happens if you go on one sunday well the prayer will be different depending on, I'll use Black Baptist since that's how I grew up. Mm -hmm. The prayer by the deacons will be different. Uh, the praise and worship will be different. It'll be, probably be far more charismatic uh, and a lot more energy in the room. Uh, there'll be a more call and response between the pastor and the congregation. And that can look very different from, uh, I'll say probably a Chinese church context where the culture is far more indirect and far more internal processing. Well, Black people are more, uh, verbally affirming. It's a call and response culture. They'll talk back to each other. So if you go to a black church one Sunday, oh, it's just great. It's something that you enjoyed and we can become consumers of that. It can even be a consumer for two weeks. But 
if you go there for 52 weeks out of the year, uh, well, then that's different. You're going to see how Black people engage with holidays. You're going to see how they engage with social justice issues. Um, depending on if our home churches talk about uh, the unarmed shootings of Black people in the country, more often than not, you will find a Black church or a Black pastor that is going to stand up and say something about those things. And so you have the opportunity to enter into the emotion, into the dialogue and the discussion, and you'll stay long enough, I think, to disagree with someone. Uh, but that disagreement, if you've given up power, uh, well, what do you do with that? Well, how do you engage in dialogue and discussion with an ethnic group whose perspective is different from yours? And if you don't have power to change their perspective or opinion on things, you just have to have a listening posture for that. I think that's radical displacement. Uh, I think far too often we as American evangelical Christians, we call it displacement, but we take our power, we take our prestige with us. And so we think that we're really immersing ourselves into an ethnic group and we're really not. There's a facade, there's, um, there is, yeah, there's a facade, a veil, I think, that other ethnic groups have up when um, the dominant culture comes in. And once they leave, the conversation changes. It happens time and time again. And so I think you've got to have radical displacement. You've got to stay long enough for people to get real about what they think and how they honestly feel about things and not just saying the answers that you want to hear, uh, because that's, that's not how we move forward. So. That's good. That's really good. Um, the phrase that comes to mind is like a drive-by yeah, experience. That's right. That's right. Drive-by displacement experience. That's not what we want. That's right. Um, Oscar Miru called it at Urbano 6. He called it uh, these helicopter missions program. It's where mm -hmm. everybody comes with our hand sanitizer. We drop off a bunch of goodies and then we leave because we've got to be able to have a committee meeting to discuss how wonderful it was. And he's like, people in third world countries, are, they're not going to say no to us because they need our dollars and they need mm -hmm. the resources that we bring. But it really hasn't affected any change in the community. Hmm. So I have this question bubbling in my head. Can mm. I put it out there? Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> and, people who are listening to, if you guys have questions, we'll come up with a hashtag, send us some questions in the meantime, mm -hmm. Twitter and digital spaces. If you've got questions, we'd love to be able to connect with you as well. But go for it, Alice, please. Yes. So um, as I've seen a number of my white friends, you could say, uh, wrestle with different um, with marginalized perspectives and living in America, um, oftentimes there's kind of this pattern where they're just really shocked, right? Like, I didn't realize that this is how you saw life. This is how you experience life. Like, my reality is different. Um, and then sometimes there's this period of guilt, confusion, what do I do? Um, and in some ways, I, I can sympathize with that, right? That's what I go through when I feel like I'm being displaced from my idea of what reality is. But where I go after that is I come to this place of, um, I come to this place where I feel like I'm readjusting my reality. I'm checking in with my community. I'm talking to other Asian Americans. I'm thinking about we. I'm thinking about whether my experience is unusual or whether it's similar to what other people that look like me or are women, because um, I am a woman and Asian American look like. Um, but I feel like for a lot of my white friends, what ends up happening is they, they, they take that next step and it almost feels like they don't, there's nothing there. Um, there's no sense of white identity, no sense of we to kind of come back to and say, how then should we live differently? Or how is our reality something different? Um, have you seen that or? 
I would say yes, I have seen examples of that. <laughs> I think um, I always, Winston Churchill said something that has stayed with me. He said, the history of books will be kind to me for I intend to write them. And I think there are ways in which uh, for the dominant culture in the United States and in the West, that's being the dominant culture in of itself is a blessing and it's been a curse. Uh, it's been a blessing because of the economic and material uh, prosperity that's available uh, in the, um, yeah, just the privileges that come with that. I think that's, um, if those privileges were equal, I think across ethnic groups, I think the West and the world would just be a better place as a result of that. Uh, sadly, however, the dominant culture in the West uh, and in the United States in particular, just got centuries of a head start uh, and not because they got here first and not because they worked harder, but because other groups were oppressed and marginalized from that. And that's what history records. But the way in which history has been told from the dominant culture is that, you know, it's a land of opportunity and that all these positive things have taken place that people have always been made equal. And if you ask um, Chinese people who were in California in the 1800s, they would disagree with you. If you ask the Italians in Chicago in the 1920s, they would disagree. Mm -hmm. You ask uh, Hispanic and Latino <laughs> people uh, at any point in time <laughs> in the United States, as well as African Americans or First Nations, indigenous people, uh, they would have a radically different interpretation of history. And so I think that's, that's the curse, or I think the sadness I think that comes from that. You've got, because uh, history is written from a dominant culture perspective with each generation of white people that come up, uh, they are shocked at the racial disparities that I think can take place sometimes, or whenever they do have some cross-cultural conversations. Um, the, love, the perspective is so radically different, I think, that, that it's almost, it is overwhelming, I think, to be able to hear, my goodness, to hear that someone of a different ethnic background um, is experiencing these things in the land in which I live, kind of what Dr. King called, like there are two Americas. There's one of opulence and opportunity and privilege. And there's one uh, in where people of color live on this lonely island of poverty and a vast ocean of prosperity. And so uh, it's painful and it's difficult. Uh, you know, if, I think if you use the five stages of grief, I think the dominant culture, like they can easily be stuck in either denial or anger or depression about things. Uh, I think we haven't done our due diligence of helping to re-educate the dominant culture. I think the dominant culture itself hasn't done its own due diligence to re-educate themselves as to the reality of what's happened. And because of that, we don't have any next steps, I think, that are universal that we can point to and say, these people throughout the course of time have been able to give some healthy next steps for white people uh, to engage. It's always something different, someone different in every generation. Um, and I think until we can get some traction there, I think it's going to be difficult. Uh, other thing I'd say, too, because I'm long-winded, is uh, dominant culture is uh, individualistic. And so I think for Black people, Latino people, Asian folks, you've got these communal cultures. Um, and so we can process together. Uh, but one of the problems or one of the issues or differences with uh, European um, perspectives is that it's very individualistic. And so that that handicaps how you can have conversations about race. What do you do when you have laws that are set up that uh, benefit an entire ethnic group uh, and then those laws change and the culture that was benefited responds to it very individualistically? Well, you'll never be able to address systemic or structural issues uh, if you reduce the problem only to the individual mindset. That way everyone can opt out. My family wasn't racist. I didn't benefit from racism. My family didn't own slaves. Maybe, maybe not directly. Indirectly, most did 
and the laws in the country benefited everyone. So what do you do with that? And I think because we can't have those conversations, we end up being stuck. So I think, here, let's see this. So part of it is, um, so this idea of like getting woke, right? It's becoming aware of the systemic injustices that are taking place in our country. Uh, it's experiencing some radical displacement. It's inviting some mentors of color. Uh, it's uh, entertaining the possibility of maybe the perspective or the narrative that we've been taught, whether it's from people of color from the dominant culture, there are ways in which that is true, but also ways in which uh, it may be different. And therefore, in some cases, different is okay, but in some cases, which it's not true, uh, that the perspective that we have, um, it may not fit with the broader narrative of history that's taking place, depending on where we live uh, here in the United States. So and that's kind of this idea of getting woke. Uh, everybody else, stay tuned, folks. You've got hopefully some interviews that will be coming up. We want to be able to have some interviews with some college students as well as some of our elders and mentors as well, too. This idea of getting woke and staying woke. Uh, we want to hear from college students. And so we'll bring in, bring in some interviews in uh, next week, next time we gather. Then also we've got some men and women who have been ambassadors for uh, college students and for the kingdom of God who've been on staff some 30 or 40 years, and they've seen far more than we have. And yet they are still uh, engaging, still praying, and still partnering to see justice come. And so clearly that definition of staying engaged and staying woke is much different from ours. And so we want to hear from them. So stay tuned. Uh, things should get interesting. Voices from the Margins is presented by Ministry in Digital Spaces, a ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. For more information on MDS, joining our team, or becoming a ministry partner, log on to digital.intervarsity.org.